Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. the show folks this is conversations with the mind and i just wanted to start out this episode with some of that deep throat singing from some tibetan monks some tibetan buddhist monks so amazing uh yeah welcome to the show guys you're in the right place um yeah, something interesting, and this is totally off track. Uh, i'll get to the welcome here in a second but the throat singing man um and any kind of chanting in general, but for me, I, I really got connected to this idea through Tibetan uh, throat singing, and it's something that I've tried to practice and I want to get much better at, but um, when I talk to uh, monks um, overseas that, that do these kind of practices and uh, have been willing to talk to me, you know, in, in what limited English they have, but it's still pretty amazing, they tell me... Um, you know, that they're literally shaping time and space and matter with the frequency and tonage of their chanting. Pretty freaking wild psychedelic stuff to think about. Um, you know, most of us here in the West don't think that we can, like, change the shape or the movement of the chaos that is the cosmos with something as simple as our voice. Um, but these monks have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years and if you've ever sat down and listened to monks chanting and done like a an internal meditation, uh, sober or on a substance, um, you know, listening to these these chants, you can reach totally different dimensions, layers, uh, different places in time and space. Um, recently, I talked with a friend, and he, he knows who he is. He listens to this show, but he said he was listening to. Um, to these type of monks chanting and meditating one day and uh he was reminded of uh an old podcast that that we've had an idea that we've put on this show before that the conversations with the mind is sort of like this round table in your mind where there's different aspects of your personality of yourself that sit at this table and all contribute to your voice and who you are and how you bring yourself to this world and your thoughts and which thoughts you pay attention to and he said he was listening to to these type of um, chants and, and meditating, and he went inside uh, of that space and saw 
all those voices sort of mingling and hanging out within like this lobby space or this, this inner palace. Um, and then he was taken to this scene, uh, outside of like outside the palace, like by the pool area. And he said he, he was kind of like a fly, like an observer, just watching like three of his, uh, aspects of his inner self, just having a, like a side conversation, not really at that big round table contributing to the, uh, to the executive functioning of this person. But, he was just kind of watching like these side conversations that our mind seems to have. And it was just really interesting um, for me to think about that and then kind of go back to um, that deep throat chanting. Such an amazing thing. But anyway, welcome to the show. Welcome back. What an awesome show we have for you guys today. This is an award-winning show, or it will be. Um, I promise you that uh, it's going to win the best podcast in the world uh, award to be given out uh, only once ever, and um, I was just informed by the universe itself that it is going to go to us here at this show for this very podcast. So very cool, very cool that you guys are listening. Um, continue to listen. That is the best way you can support us. Um, also, spend just a couple seconds, click like and share, maybe do it a couple times, like like 10 times. Go share, 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 share. Go share it with your uh, social media peeps. Share it with your family. Share it with your friends. Uh, I hope that you took to mind the experiment that I put out for you all, the little homework assignment, a way for you to help contribute to the podcast, uh, texting uh, just a couple people in your circle after you got done listening to the podcast. Hopefully you did. Hopefully you texted a couple people just to say, hey, go check out this podcast. It's free. It's really cool. Uh, you might get something from it. Um, let's try that again this week. Let's try and uh, see You know, if you... Guys, you don't have to tell me that you helped out. I can feel it. I can feel some of you guys out there helping out the podcast, and I appreciate it so much. It really does help, and it keeps me going on these things, too, to know that you guys are involved, too. Um, it helps me not feel like I have to carry all the weight because I do all the editing and all this stuff. That's why it takes me so long to get these podcasts out. I think I spend, like, maybe, I don't know, five five hours of uh, work on each one, Um so it takes quite a bit of time, uh, and I have very limited time uh, with how thin I am stretched with all the things that I'm doing. So thank you guys for contributing. Please like and share. Please share with your friends. Tell everyone. Uh, if you find any value in the podcast, feel free to donate. No obligation, though, but it does cost money for us to keep this thing up and running and getting you the best content and the best guests possible. Um, you should be able to click on the link at the bottom of whatever app you're listening to to donate. Also, Go check out our MindOps YouTube page and MindOps.com. For both of those, it's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Um, Got to have that hyphen in there or else it's going to take you somewhere else. So go check out MindOps.com and MindOps YouTube page. We've got a lot of cool videos up there. All right. Um, for a quick few minutes, um, warm your brains up. Get those circuits firing. Get those connections happening. Become mindful. Get into the present moment with this song by the Arturo Complex. Uh, they wrote this song specifically for the podcast. Uh, so we are very blessed and honored to uh, feature them on here. Also, the song at the end of each podcast is also written by them, too. A little bit uh, more heavier rendition of some of their work. Um, go check them out on Spotify. Um, they just released a new album, and it is killer, guys. Another one of those things that you can just kind of put on in the background 
background and and let your mind kind of unfold and unpack itself and you know shed some of the layers of ego and dissolution that we hold on to and that hold us back and sort of get to that raw get to that raw self on the inside and really start to look at that really cool all right give it a listen folks here we go All right, let's turn those frowns upside down with a good news story. Today's good news story comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org. 
This is where we get most of our good news stories because they just rock over there and they do all the hard work for me. And all I got to do is spread the word to you. Uh, so hopefully this puts a smile on your face. I know it did for me, uh, especially because I have a background in mental health and this one involves mental health. So the title of the article reads, Holiday Card from Mystery Neighbor Has Totally Revitalized Disabled Woman with Dementia. Pretty cool story. Um, it it goes into talking about um, this woman who has been severely depressed and has dementia, uh, an, an elderly woman, um, and they don't uh, mention her name in the in the article. I think she wanted to stay um, somewhat anonymous, but you know the granddaughter did a lot of the talking for her for this article, and she describes her grandmother just kind of. Sitting in front of her window day after day, um, and that's just kind of her routine, just kind of like being depressed and looking out the window um, and not remembering much of, of what's going on in her life. And so what happened was over the holidays, um, just some mystery neighbor who only used her first name um, just dropped off a card in this in this woman's mailbox and said, like, you know, I walk by your, your house every day and it's just always so good to see you sitting in your window smiling. Um, you bring, you know, you bring joy to my life. And the card, the letter, the sentiment itself that this grandmother got in the mail, she read it and she was just enthralled. She was taken aback. And uh, the granddaughter says that because of this letter, uh, her grandmother's depression just rapidly improved, um, got so much better, and that, um, you know, some of the brain connections started coming back as far as the dementia. And, you know, now the grandma isn't like 100% back to normal, but she started showing symptoms of, you know, uh, more neuroplasticity and, and things like that in her brain where she was actually able to remember a little bit more throughout the day as far as like names and faces and, and connections uh, with this uh, neighbor who wrote the letter. So it was really cool to see like how something as simple as like a little thank you card, um, even anonymous, anonymously uh, can be received by someone and have profound um, influences on their mental and spiritual and physical well-being. Uh, and it got me thinking about like, um, you know, all the little opportunities that each and every one of us have every single day to be able to contribute something positive to somebody's life. And oftentimes we don't take those because sometimes we feel like, uh, you know, what's, what's this little thing going to do? Well, you don't know until you do it and, uh, you might as well just go ahead and do it. Um, even if, even if you don't get recognition for it or even if you don't see any immediate change that necessarily happens with that person you have no idea how that is going to ripple through and influence other people um, something i've often said you know um, because we know that you know well in buddhist philosophy they say this and and you know in a lot of science they say this but you know energy cannot be neither be created or destroyed it just gets um trans uh, transferred into different types of um, energy, substances, uses, things like that. And um, I don't know where I was going with that, but it was, I don't know, it was fascinating to just to just see how, oh yeah, now I know where I was going with that. So, 
yeah, your, your body is going to be gone one day. Your body of work is going to be gone one day. The legend of whoever you think you are is going to be gone one day. So oftentimes we're left with this question like, well, well, then what does it all matter if everything that I do, every effort, everything I strive for is going to be lost and forgotten? What is the freaking point? Well, I've had this thought, and uh, and I don't think I'm the first one to think this, that there is a part of ourselves that continues on forever and ever and ever for all infinity, and that's what matters. That's why we should strive uh, to grow. And um, I've had this thought that um, maybe... Uh, and this is, you know, a part of a piece of my mind and a conversation with my mind is that maybe it is um, our deeds, our intentions, uh, our karma that goes on forever. And karma, not so much in the sense of like uh, uh, good deeds, bad deeds, comparative list, um, or maybe like scales of justice where you know you you weigh out all the good versus the way all the things you did negatively but karma in the sense of you know our actions and our thoughts and our intentions um having an actual physical energetic presence in physical reality and in this uh consciousness space and then maybe it's this energy that continues to move forward um, or cycle, um, whether time is linear or cyclical, it doesn't matter. Um, in this idea, you know, it's, it's the, the things that we do and the way that we impact other people and environments and animals and bugs and everything that ripples through time. So if we put out good things, uh, if we're nice to people, you know, oftentimes that influences other people to go be nice to other people. And you see how this ripple just keeps going as, as we pay it forward. And it's that one initiation of that action that you do with somebody else that ripples through time and space in a positive direction. Now, that's there's also a warning and a, and a danger there, too, because that can happen with uh, negative intention and negative action and negative behaviors, too. So if you're negative with someone, they're probably more likely to go past that energy, past that negativity onto someone else or some other thing or go step on a bug or kick a dog or whatever, um, you know, flip someone off, whatever. So all those things ripple through time and space, right? So... I don't know. I try and focus on trying to put more positivity out into the universe than what I'm given, um, or what I what I came to you know what I came to this planet with. I try and put more out than what I was given. Kind of like when you go into the wilderness and you're hiking and uh, you try and pick up some trash so that you leave the the natural space better than when you found it. That's kind of like what I try and strive for in my life in general. In all my relationships, I try and leave them better off than how I found them, uh, my environments better off than how I found them. And, uh, so this has kind of been a conversation with my mind sparked by this good news story that, you know, we really don't know how we impact other people, nor should we seek approval from others or valuation from others. Uh, we shouldn't be doing things just to get accolade, but we should be doing things just out of the goodness of our heart, because we want more of that to show up in our lives. We want more of that to show up in the world in general. 
right? We got to be like Gandhi and be that change we want to see because each and every one of us contribute to that forward moving ripple effect. And whether it's going to be positive or negative uh, is up to us. And it's up to us individually and collectively because it works on both those levels. Um, But I know for me, I'm going to try and strive to put forth uh, positive forward momentum. All right. So I kind of combined the good news story with a conversation with my mind all in one segment there. But uh, I'm glad I did because I want to get right into this interview uh, or this conversation, I guess. Um, Very special guest today. Uh, some of you guys may have heard of him. Some of you guys may have read his books or seen him speak. Uh, he's, you know, he's spoken probably thousands of times to universities and conferences, international, all these things. Big name in the in the realm of uh, in the field of consciousness, in the field of psychedelics, in the field of ethnopharmacology. Um, yeah, big name. One of our biggest name guests so far, Doctor Dennis McKenna. Awesome to get him on the podcast. Um, I met him a number of years ago, and I'll talk about this in the beginning. I met him a number of years ago at a a symposium and had him sign my book. We didn't really get to talk that much, but, uh, you know, I read a lot of his readings and really got into um, the way that he was conceptualizing consciousness and the use of psychedelic and plant medicines to help as tools to help facilitate um, the evolution of our consciousness to higher and higher levels. greater integration and consideration for earth systems and the entirety of this Gaia organism, this earth, human, animal, plant, um, entity that we're all a part of. It's, you know, one large entity. Um, we don't often think about it that way, but go check out, uh, if you guys like this podcast for sure, uh, YouTube, Dennis McKenna, He's got lots and lots of content, uh, lots of lectures, lots of cool stuff. Uh, go check out his books. Um, some are avail- available on Amazon. Some are not available anymore and out of print. Um, but uh, really prolific um, gentleman. Um, he has been a hero of mine and someone that I have um, strived to uh, follow after a bit in my own uh, professional life and professional thinking. So, um, yeah, go check out Dennis McKenna. And I'm not going to go through his whole background because his life is uh, his life and his life experience are very extensive. Um, and we get into a lot of that in the show. But just type his name into Wikipedia and uh, you'll get a quick, you know, five, ten minute rub- rundown uh, of who he is and what his life and and what his contribution has been. Um, Really cool stuff. Also, go check out the McKenna Academy. That is a um, a philosophy academy that he has put together. The McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy is what it's called. Uh, I think it's McKenna.academy, maybe .com. Um, Really cool uh, educational venue in which um you know he's really trying to answer some of those biggest some of those big big questions that we all have and we've all had through time and history he's also um really um integrated with the hefter research institute uh hefter research institute has been known for um, funding a lot of uh, psychedelic science and research projects um uh, consciousness 
research, things like that. So go check out the hefter.org. I think you can donate on the site and find out, you know, what they're all about and their mission. Um, also where, you know, where they're going to be giving talks and things like that as well. Um, so yeah, let's get right into the podcast. We talk a lot a, about a lot of good things today. I'm looking at my show notes from the show and man, we covered a lot of it and in not very much time, um, we just kind of flew through things and I hope to be able to talk to Dennis again um, in the coming year, 2020, when I see him again at the Consciousness Conference in Tucson, Arizona. I think it's in April. He'll be giving um, a lecture or speech there and... Uh, Hopefully, he and I will be able to get together and do uh, you know, a follow-up conversation of this one. So buckle yourselves in because this one is intense and amazing, and, uh, and I knew it blew my mind um, uh, way more than I thought it would, and I'm sure it will for you too. Um, but yeah, hope you guys really like it. All right, here we go. take a quick break from conversations with the mind i just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by mind ops so go check out the mind ops website m-i-n-d hyphen o-p-s now back to the show all right folks welcome back to conversations with the mind i'm your host shane lamaster and we're here for episode number 64 with very special guest dr dennis mckenna Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Mm -hmm. And as I was just saying right before we got started, it's it's kind of a full circle thing for me to have you here. Um, you're one of my heroes in the field, uh, in the field of consciousness and psychedelics in general. I met you in 2017 at a psychedelic symposium in Boulder at the Boulder Theater. Had you uh, sign my book, uh, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Uh, which became really influential for me, a lot of parallels between myself and my brother. So um, thank you again for coming to the show. I'm happy to come on your show. I remember the Boulder event very well. It was, uh, it was uh, a lot of fun. So um, the first question is the only real standardized question that I have, and I ask it to all my guests, and that is um, the show's name is Conversations with the Mind. Um, so what does that phrase mean to you? How does it land with you? Maybe what sort of images or constructs come to mind when you hear the phrase conversations with the mind? Con conversations with the mind. Well, <laughs> you could interpret that any number of ways. I mean, it seems to me like all conversations are with the mind in a certain sense. You know, uh, if you... I mean, you know, we could unpack this lots of different ways, but the con conversation implies more than one. You know, you've got at least two people conversing. Hopefully mind is in there somewhere, you know, or otherwise it's just gibberish, and God knows there are plenty of conversations like that. Uh, but hopefully ours will rise to a, a, a somewhat higher level, hopefully a, a much higher level. And yeah, so that's about uh, all I can say about it. But, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, these conversations, hopefully, within our own minds, are constructive in a way that are, you know, facilitating some kind of growth or evolution. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, like you said, I have a sense that some of those um, 
some of those conversations or the voices at the table might be, you know, misguided or directed more towards, you know, addictive personalities for me personally, or, or things like that too. So, um, but welcoming at all the, all aspects of ourselves to this table um, and sort of taking in an, an, an executive functioning over that. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Um, I was, I was wondering if you would, um, if you would do me the pleasure of maybe reliving a little bit and maybe unpacking um, one of your biggest consciousness manifesting experiences. I mean, you have vast experience across a number of traditions and um, philosophies and things like that. And maybe one that particularly sticks out to you as like, wow, this is what consciousness is all about. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it's hard to pick out a a specific uh, trip or experience that exemplifies all of that. I mean, there have been quite a few over the years, and uh, you know, and I, I can't really point to any particular one that. Well, maybe maybe I could maybe. I could say that uh, the first time I took uh, ayahuasca with the UDV um, happened in 1991, and uh, you probably heard about, heard me talk about this before. But I took it in a group. You know, it was in one of their temples. There were about 500 people in the temple, all taking ayahuasca at this time. It was after a symposium that we'd done with the UDV and a kind of a scientific symposium, which was unheard of in those days, but, but we did it. And, uh, and then I, at the end of the symposium, they wanted everyone to, you know, experience their, their sacrament as they understand it. You know, that was for them, that was the big deal. You know, they wanted all the foreigners to who, that they'd invited to have the experience. And, uh, I was, it was, it was a great experience. I was blessed because I didn't have to pay attention. You know, everybody was speaking Portuguese. So I felt quite free to just go deep, you know, and not really paying attention to what was going on in around me. And I just went deep and, that was when I was granted this vision of photosynthesis mm. by the plant, which you probably heard me talk about. You know, it changed my life in a lot of ways. Uh, it helped me understand the importance of plants on a really visceral level. I mean, I, I experienced, uh, you know, what it was to be a water molecule, in, you know, involved in this process of photosynthesis, which is really kind of a miracle when you think about it, you know, this is what's keeping life uh, on the planet. This is what's sustaining life on the planet is photosynthesis. You know, everything else, all everything else on, on the planet is our parasites on, on green plants and other things that make their own food. You know, we're parasites with not necessarily a, in a bad sense, but we do depend on them. And, and if it weren't for the plants, 
you know, we wouldn't be here. In fact, no life would be on the planet. So when I say, you know, you monkeys only think you're running things, you know, the, the other side of that message is the plants are running things and they really are running things. Um, you know, and so that was brought home to me in a very personal way, you know, and it was, you know, I mean, it's hard to describe a sort of a romp through the steps of photosynthesis, the biochemical roller coaster ride that is photosynthesis. And I was on that roller coaster. And, uh, you know, it was an amazing ride. It's hard to just, it's hard to characterize it as a mystical experience. People say, what is, you know, you're talking about a biochemical process here, but it was a mystical experience for me. It was really very meaningful. And it was kind of the point where I really got the lesson about the, the role that plants play and the sustainability of, of life on earth. And, and also it was all tied into you know, the Amazon and what, what we are, you know, the concerns for saving the Amazon. It hasn't gotten any better ever since, Mm -hmm. but I mean, hopefully some people have woken up, although sometimes I wonder, you know, unfortunately the people that control, you know, environmental policy in Brazil are not responsible. And in fact, you know, I'm very dismayed by Bolsonaro. He's taking a, a page from Trump in terms of basically just denying that there is a environmental, uh, you know, crisis in the Amazon. But there is, you know, and anyone who looks at that objectively can can see that there is. Mm-hmm. And the Amazon's in, under deep threat. And, you know, my experience was... 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, it was 1991. So I was hoping that, uh, you know, I mean, that the wake-up call that I was hoping would happen, uh, that that experience made me hope for, really hasn't happened. And that's very disturbing to me. You know, I mean, I have been a optimistic person about the all of these global environmental issues that you know we have enough time we can turn it around but people have got to wake up but i've you know i've always said that the plants these psychedelic plants are are catalysts for waking up the monkeys you know they have worked to a certain extent. I mean, lots of monkeys have been woken up. Not enough, unfortunately. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm honestly, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I am, a, I am a bit pessimistic these days. I, I have heard you speak about that experience, and I think didn't you write about that experience in particular in your book? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, I did write about it. that's the one yeah so for the listeners out there um an amazing book um so after i read that passage in your book and it's so amazing 
I've, I can't even imagine having a group ceremony with 500 people. The collective energy must have been so intense. Um, but after reading that and after hearing you speak about it, uh, I had a, an, uh, also an ayahuasca experience in which um, I, I was touching a tree and I was able to manifest um, almost exactly how you described it, you know, feeling what it was like to be the tree, to see history and time unfold in a completely different time scale than we think of as human beings, seeing mm -hmm. um, the interactions and the messages that the plants are trying to communicate with us. And then also applying that same type of technique to my inner uh, in, inside my body. So, you know, zooming down into the size of a blood cell and traveling through the entire body to all the different systems, seeing how they communicate with each other. And, the, you know, I'm not a chemist. I, I have basic knowledge of um, body systems, uh, you know, with my psychology background. But um, I was able to see like these processes and these communications unfold and just mm -hmm. gain a much deeper understanding of, um, you know the the interconnectedness and um i where do you think and i see i see it also you know there's kind of like this fall away especially in western society follow falling away from even a desire to want to explore one's own consciousness which i believe is is maybe our most fundamental gift that we're given um but also i see a reawakening in some sectors you know with the psychedelic renaissance and things so I'm hopeful in some ways, but also I'm wondering like, where did we go wrong? Where, where was our fall from? Where, where did we fall from the mystical? We used to be cultures uh, rich in mystical experience and um, spiritual experience. And that was like the foundation of our societies. And we've gotten away from that here in the West. Uh -huh. Well, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, I mean, one thing that's interesting about these substances is you, you don't have to be a biochemist, you know, to have these kinds of experiences. I mean, I had, when I had my photosynthesis experience, I had, I had plenty of courses in plant biochemistry because that was, you know, that was my, that was what I studied. And, and so there was a framework for it. On the other hand, I think that these things are, you know, if you're familiar with the writings of uh, Simon Powell, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he makes a very good point, which is that psychedelics are lenses for looking at reality, you know, through a different, a slight, from a slightly different perspective. And they facilitate your insights into the way things work, basically, that, that, you know, they're always there, but we, we push them into the background. So psychedelics can be used to train a person almost as though um, like a microscope or a telescope. They give you a, a, a lens through which you can observe phenomena and you can understand things about them that you never noticed before. And, they're, and once you notice them, they're always there. You know, I mean, these are not delusions. These are real things. But you're, we're trained to suppress things, put them in the background. And you can look at experiences like Carrie Mullis, for example, the molecular biologist who, um, you know, in 
in his, he credits he invented the the polymerase chain reaction uh, which revolutionized molecular biology mm. and he got the Nobel Prize for that and he is very out front he's he's not embarrassed at all to say LSD is what gave him the insight LSD is what mm -hmm. enabled him to get down with the molecules as he puts it mm -hmm. and see what was going on and so it's a real it, it's a real thing it's a real instrument of discovery and uh, I think, you know, that's an important application of these things is to, is to apply it to understanding of the natural world. You know, we tend to, when we think about psychedelics, we tend to, like we do with everything, we, we put things into boxes, right? Mm -hmm. We say, oh, it's got to be about mystical experience. It's got to be about spiritual experience. It has to be this or that or the other thing well that's all very well but psychedelics are their own thing you know and they can be many things i mean i mean the experience i had with photosynthesis i would not call a mystical experience i mean it was it was a, it was a biological experience it was a, it was an appreciation of the way that life worked you know and uh, I guess you could call that mystical, but that, you know, that would be the first word I'd apply to it. It was actually uh, an apprehension of a phenomenon in nature, which is, which happens all around us and every day, and we just never notice it, you know, but it's profound when you think about it, that this is the process that, captures energy out of space energy of the sun and actually harvests that light energy through these light harvesting pigments and then uses that energy to create chemistry i mean that's an alchemical process and when you think about it i mean it's it's biological there's nothing miraculous about it you know except that life itself is miraculous you know so it's an instantiation of that. So I think that, you know, I would like to see more uh, of that. I, I, I think, you know, I think that um, psychedelics are, you know, not given their due in some ways in terms of their potential because of our tendency to put them into a box. They're either for spiritual experience or they're for therapeutic uses. Um, and there's nothing wrong with either of those two things, but they're not limited to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I, I found also, you know, language doesn't do these types of experiences justice anyway. Um, so applying language seems almost futile, although it gives us a little bit of a base understanding to be able to share uh, collectively these experiences. But I've also, you know, I've, I've used psychedelics for performance enhancement. I'm a, I'm a, a professional jujitsu athlete. So I've, you know, competed on microdoses and things like that and, and creativity and, and we're learning that it's boosting neurogenesis and learning and all these great brain things. And I love how you're, you're talking about, um, you know, the brain and well, these are, these are tools in and of themselves, but our brain and our body itself is a tool. And I think if we can start to think about it as a tool, then we can start to utilize it in those ways rather than identifying too much with the body I've heard you talk about the brain being like a filter for reality. 
um, you know, and how psychedelics open up that those floodgates a bit more and allow more connections and, and allow us to see those things that are already present. And with your photosynthesis um, experience, what sort of uh, what sort of unfolding understanding have you gained about you know if the plants are cultivating us and ruling over us, uh, they must be like the primary form of consciousness maybe on this planet or maybe the planet itself is a consciousness. So how does how does your understanding of the plants and the plant intelligence factor into how you conceptualize consciousness in general? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, like, again, it, it's this, um, you know, this inability to recognize intelligence in a certain way. I mean, in other words, the plants, you know, uh, and many other things. I mean, I'm a believer in Gaia and the, and the whole Gaia uh, idea that the biosphere as a whole is this community. It's a super organism. There's actually a word for this in biology. You know, we are super organisms too. We have our, our microbiome, you know, almost 50% of our biomass is genetically not us. You know, it's these microbial symbionts that live with us. That's a super organism. Well, the biosphere is just an enormous super organism made up of the entire community of species. I think it is conscious uh, and, you know, not conscious in the way that we are, but probably super conscious in a certain way. And, uh, you know, it responds, it, it's all about, you know, the, the, the Gaian community of, of species is all about uh, preserving the planet in a, you know, preserving and maintaining conditions on the planet that are sustainable for life, you know, and it, it, it regulates these processes on the global scale through feedback mechanisms and signal transduction processes that are not unlike something that goes on in an individual organisms, uh, you know, but these happen on the planetary scale. So, you know, there are forms and forms of intelligence, you know, and, and people, you know, there is this presumption, you probably heard me talk about this, that there's this presumption that without brains, you can't have intelligence. That is not true. <laughs> we're, we're understanding it's not about brains per se. It's about hyper-connected networks. Mm -hmm. And a, the brain is a hyper-connected network of neurons. And obviously it can be intelligent, when it's not being dumb, it can be very intelligent, you know, but you get these uh, highly connected networks everywhere in nature. And, you know, Paul Stamets, for example, talks beautifully about the, the networks of mycelia and, and mycorrhizal relationships that, you know, link the old growth forest together and essentially in a natural internet kind of, it's kind of a, a for a, a, a nervous system, but you know, it, in that it's analogous to a nervous system in that it's a, it's a hyperconnected network that facilitates information exchange and helps 
the forest as an organism monitor the conditions that it's growing in and respond to them, you know, respond to threats and so on. And, you know, plants use chemistry to respond to threats in their environment or to adapt their, their, uh, well, to adapt to the environment. Plants do all this through chemistry. Animals tend to do it through behavior. You know, and I, you've, you've heard me say, plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, plants are stuck in one place. They can't run away. So they have to deal with whatever their challenges are. They have to deal with it through, you know, they don't have the option to get up and leave. So they have to deal with it. And they do that through chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so... um you know, in that sense, it's intelligence. You know, there are different ways of thinking of intelligence, but the definition I like that applies to plants and these other organisms that we don't really think of as intelligence because they don't have brains, right? But do they optimize their relationships with their environment to to maintain optimal conditions in the environment to support their life if if they do then that that's kind of intelligence you far know. more intelligent than many of us and indeed it is yeah as we're learning mm-hmm. to our detriment we're not very good at adapting and uh, and we're not very good at uh, getting out of these habitual uh, ways of thinking about things. And I, I think we're going to pay the price. We are, in fact, paying the price. Yeah. I really like how you talk about intelligence, not in the sense of IQ or brain um, things, but more in, in the sense of this interconnected network of uh, data sharing and information sharing to maximize homeostasis Um, Mm -hmm. and to me that has been my experience and that's what a lot of the studies with psychedelics are showing is that they're enhancing our tools ability uh, to connect with itself you know it enhances this interconnectivity um, Mm -hmm. to a point where we can now transcend you know maybe more primitive behaviors primitive uh thinking patterns maladaptive thoughts things like that and hopefully um transcend into these higher states of consciousness um which brings me into you know kind of segueing into talking with you a little bit about um the philosopher's stone and that's been conceptualized in lots of different traditions across history and time i really like your how you talk about the philosopher's stone in your book, um, specifically referring to the mushrooms and things mm-hmm. like that, and being these catalysts, these these uh, you know, for lack of a better term, these magic molecules that help enhance already innate abilities that maybe we've forgotten or lost. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about the philosopher's stone as a concept as it relates to these things especially in the in the wake of uh decriminalized denver you know with the decriminalized mushroom movement and Uh um and i want to i want to let you know uh i i actually just found this out last week the day before christmas um i was uh, i was selected to be one of 10 members on 
the first ever uh, psilocybin mushroom policy review panel in Denver. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. So I'll be um, uh, reporting directly to the mayor um, about psilocybin and, and reporting to him about the effects of decriminalization, training law enforcement in our area as far as how to, how to handle situations like this and what their focus should be on. So this is all kind of in the wake of um, this movement in mushrooms and another right. reason why, why you're here today, because, you know, I consider you a father of contemporary mushrooms in, in the U S <laughs> is this for Fort Collins or Denver or um, the policy review board is for Denver because it's okay. criminalized there so far. Yeah. 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 Is uh, our psilocybin mushrooms going to be on the ballot this November in Colorado? Um, we're, I think we're trying to uh, hopefully get it more statewide or in at least um, some more municipalities throughout the state. Uh, Fort Collins right now has a group through the CSU Psychedelic Club that's trying to get um, people banded together for petitioning a decriminalize in Fort Collins. Okay. Um, so that'd be great. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. It's uh, it's very encouraging to see this. Um it's unfortunate that it has to happen this way in a sense, but then, you know, I mean, you would think there would be a little more clarity uh, at a, at a higher governmental level about, you know, reforming the policy, reforming the understanding of these things that, you know, it has to happen apparently city by city, you know, it has to happen locally and maybe that's the way it should be, but it, you know, it frustrates those of us who would like to see it happen faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least, at least it's happening. And, you know, I'm, I think that, you know, the, uh, the initiatives in Oregon and California in November, I think they have a good chance of, of passing and that's going to change the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole thing, you know, what I am saying about this conversation about decriminalization is the very idea that you could criminalize any organism, that you could just declare it, that it has no right to exist. I mean, who who gave us that authority? Who do we think you we know? are? I mean, we, we, if anything, we should be looking at ourselves, you know. We're the ones that are screwing things up on this planet. You know, do we have the right to exist? Well, there's nobody around to tell us that we can't. Mm -hmm. And nobody, you know, to make laws that says, you know, humans are, you know, dangerous controlled substances and shouldn't be allowed. You know, and just just this whole attitude about criminalizing these plants and fungi that have existed, you know, as symbiotes of the human species for tens of thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, maybe even longer. I mean, it's just, it's absurd on the face of it. And so I think as a, as a political statement, as an assertion of human rights, you know, we should assert the right to form symbioses. Symbiosis should be stated as a basic human right because it involves partnerships with things that are not human it should be it should be asserted as a as a basic right of any living living thing you know <clears throat> people should have the the authority the the 
they shouldn't have to ask, I guess is the question. They have the right to form these alliances as they always have. Now, sure, there are regulatory issues, you know, having, the issues should be, you know, um, not whether people have a right to use these substances. The focus has got to be on, you know, there are quality issues, right? And that should be paid attention to. That should be regulated. There are educational issues, you know. I mean, the whole thing that we're now learning after 40 years of the failed drug war, the thing that we're now learning is that it's education that is the answer, not prohibition. You know, we need to learn how to use these things properly. And there's plenty of uh, ways to do that. You know, there's lots of information and people just have to, you know, learn to make informed choices about which substances they use, how they use them, and so on. But that should be up to the individual to decide. <clears throat> you know, and and hopefully with the help of, you know, this accumulated body of knowledge that we have, you know, because even though psychedelics have been technically prohibited since the end of the 60s they've never gone away you know and and now they're coming back and they're suddenly more popular again but the thing is in that 40 year span we've learned a lot about how to use these things so in the 60s there was no accepted uh you know body of knowledge about the proper way to use these things. Nobody really had any idea. We looked to the indigenous traditions for, for, for guidelines, and that's, uh, that's obvious. If you want to learn how to use psychedelics, talk to the people that have used them for 10,000 years, they probably know a thing or two. Mm -hmm. you know? But you don't need an FDA. You don't need that kind of regulation. You certainly don't need prohibition. None of these things are, you know, none of these things are helpful to solving the problem. So, you know, if you look at this in terms of how do we, we are in a symbiotic relationship with these things. It's not for nothing that indigenous people call these plant teachers. You know, we learn from them, whether, whether the, the plant teachers, you know, actually you know, have a message for us or whether they, they unlock a part of our mind where, you know, the truth is there. We just didn't know about it before. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is the information good? And, you know, if you're inv involved in these kinds of relationships, that's, that's what you want to get out of it. So, so in that sense, um, you know, you, you brought up initially the idea of the philosopher's stone and <laughs> sort of oh, we've, we've drifted away from that topic, but we can come back to it because I do think that really that's what these things are in a certain sense. They are just a technology. They're a technology for learning about our world, about ourselves, about the mind, consciousness, about nature, how nature works. You know, they really are an instrument. And depending on where you shine the light, 
you know, they have different applications. I mean, you might shine the light onto yourself. You know, you might use them to examine your own issues that maybe, you know, your depression or your, you know, relationships, all of, all of the psychotherapeutic applications. But the psychedelics are not limited to that. You know, that's a small slice of what we can learn from, from these things. And uh, so I think, I think that the prohibition uh, and criminalization model just doesn't work. We've shown that it doesn't work. So these, these decriminalization movements are, are very hopeful. The depressing part is that they were criminalized in the first place, yep. you know, but finally, you know, we're beginning to, to correct that. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize just, you know, in, in, in the course of time with humans, you know, we've been using these molecules for a lot, lot longer than they've been prohibited. You know, yeah. I think I, I've seen, I've seen uh, ethnographic uh, or anthropological studies of, of human migration across the continents and how cannabis has followed the human migrations because humans have brought it along with them. And same with fungus and, and uh, different species of mushrooms too. They've sort of symbiotically formed these, um, you know, these beneficial relationships with humans and humans know that and they've taken them with them across their journeys across the continents. Um, but bringing it back to the philosopher's stone, I agree with you, education and knowledge not only from these plant medicines and these teachers is vital to, to hone in on, but also how do us who maybe are more initiated into this idea, how do we educate maybe the uninitiated? How do we talk to our kids about consciousness in this way to bring about greater awareness of, of plants and, and our role um, not as dominators over the earth, but as, you know, servants of the earth. How do we educate? Yeah. As, as partners with nature. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to have that conversation with people that have never taken psychedelics. I mean, this, this is the tricky part. You know, there are basically two kinds of people in this world. Those who have been beyond the chrysanthemum and those who haven't. And it's very hard to have a conversation with the people that haven't, you can talk yourself till you're blue in the face. They will never get it. You know, all it takes, you know, is they have to have faith enough in themselves to encourage enough to take the, take a chance, you know, drink the cup, smoke the pipe, whatever it is. And then they can see for themselves. And it's, it's like, you know, in trying to talk to people that haven't had the experience, it's almost, I mean, I've, I've sort of come to say, there's no point in even talking to you, you know, because you don't understand. And until you have the experience, you'll never understand. So we're just talking past each other here. There really isn't any point. But, you know, I could facilitate you know, your experience, or I could put you in touch with the people that could do that, then we can have that conversation and it'll be a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the, I mean, the challenge is that, that the person who, you know, the person has to be open-minded enough to take that risk and, you know, certain characteristic of the mindset that, 
you know, I would never touch a psychedelic. I mean, it's like, you know, okay, but, but number one, you don't know what you're missing. And number two, you are totally disqualified from discussing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am a, I, so I started my PhD in social work um, at Colorado State just last fall. Uh, just made it through my first semester. Yay for, um, so it's been, it's been a growth experience so far. And, um, you know, we're talking about um, educating the uninitiated and Luckily, you know, the climate at CSU has changed, I think, since you've, since you've been there. Uh, and that's a really cool Colorado tie that you, you've, you uh, did work at CSU in the 70s, right? Um, yes, yes. Well, in fact, uh, um, I figured out how to grow the psilocybin mushrooms at CSU. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, we had, I had access to the uh, tissue culture lab. I was a botany student. So the tissue culture lab was adjacent to the greenhouse. And as it happened, my best friend from high school was, and he's still a very good friend. He was, but my best friend from high school was uh, in charge of the botany greenhouse at CSU at that time. And, you know, we were practically roommates. We didn't live together, but we lived in the same apartment. And so so I had access to the tissue culture lab. And at that time, we were grappling with this with this question of how are we going to grow these critters, you know? And this was like 1975. And, uh, and then this interesting article came out from uh, Michael Logia. And it was, it was an article about how to uh, – grow agaricus bisporus, the common table mushroom in, in jars, in mason jars, you know, of sterilized grain. All I did was take those techniques and apply them to psilocybin and it worked like a charm, you know, and, and, and that changed everything, you know, and, and all that work was done uh, you know, it was basically done at CSU because I, I had access to autoclaves and sterile fume hoods and, and all that stuff. So I bless CSU very much uh, for contributing to the, to the uh, you know, transformation of global consciousness. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do it if it hadn't been for CSU. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, which... I don't know if you are affiliated with the university or are you, do you have any, any. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a student in the social work PhD program. I'm also a, okay. a graduate research assistant. Um, but I do, I think I mentioned this to you. I, I intend to do my dissertation on psychedelic assisted therapies and to yeah. my knowledge, uh, this is the only type of psychedelic project that's happened at CSU since maybe your time there. Um, so really cool linkages there. I think that's really fascinating. And so far well, I, I, I've, I've gotten a lot of support, so they seem pretty open-minded. Yeah. Well, times have changed, you know, and that's, that's a good thing, but I was going to ask you, I don't know if you have any access to the botany greenhouse, but there was my friend, Larry, the guy who managed the greenhouse, he planted a cutting of Banisteriopsis in the greenhouse. And uh, just in the time I was there, it was getting quite large. And 
I'm just curious to know if it still might might be there. Um, probably not. I I don't know, but it, it would be interesting to know because if it's still there, then it probably has taken over the whole greenhouse. Mm. These these things tend to get big, you know. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, <laughs> so your advice too. Um, I think I've I've spoken to you back and forth through email about my ideas for a dissertation, but it seems like, uh, you know, like you said before, the mystical experience with these molecules is not everything. It's not the only use, but it is a very profound transformational um, possibility for these types yep. of molecules. And yeah, and uh, so the mystical <coughs> has been, you know, maybe studied longer than than most other topics in philosophy across traditions. Um, but nobody has really, at least in contemporary times, tried to look at precipitory factors that lead to mystical experience. And that's sort of what I'm hoping to explore in my dissertation uh, mm -hmm. with ketamine, because ketamine is, is legal here. We have a ketamine clinic locally. Uh, I'm part of actually, uh, have you heard of the um, Psychedelic Research and Training Institute up here in Fort Collins? Excuse me? What? Have you heard of uh, the Psychedelic Research and Training Institute up here in Fort Collins? No, no. So uh, directed by uh, Dr. Scott Shannon and out of the Wholeness Center, um, you know, we're doing research now on ketamine uh, therapies, um, hopefully psilocybin therapies here in the future, and uh, also MDMA, things like that. So Prati, um, pratigroup.org, uh, if you want to look it up. But my anyway, my dissertation um, focusing on in on this mystical experience. Um, what are your what are your insights? I mean, I know you've been to that place before. I know, you know, once once we've experienced it, we know for ourselves that that place is real. Um, right. But you know, again, language does not do the mystical experience any justice, and it's difficult to study it scientifically. Um, how how might we go about? looking at the precipitory factors so that maybe we can figure out how to give more people more of these experiences uh, more frequently if that's what they're seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just hang on, hang on just a second. I have to, yeah. I'm getting hot here and I got to turn the heater off. <laughs> sure. I'm cloistered downstairs in my lair. It gets a little chilly sometimes, so now it's getting too hot. But anyway, I think I mean this is this is this is the conundrum, you know. And it it's not only psychedelics; it's the conundrum that neuroscience faces, you know, in trying to study consciousness uh, and any conscious state, you know. Um, um, you know, I, I mean, Johns Hopkins, as you know, they sort of are the leaders when it comes to studying psilocybin for spiritual applications for mystical states and so on. They're still limited by their instruments, mm -hmm. you know, whether the instruments are a questionnaire that, you know, people might fill out to review their experiences or a pre-experience, post-experience questionnaire or integration 
then you've got all the fancy toys, you've got fMRIs, you can, you can put people, you know, into these machines and visualize what parts of the brain are activated when you take psilocybin or what parts are suppressed. And you can make all sorts of statements about what's going on, you know, and, and those are all very interesting. You can say, well, obviously, you know, the cortex is activated, the, the amygdalas, you know, involved, you can make all these statements. You're still on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the conundrum that neuroscience is faced with. How do you bridge this, this seemingly insurmountable gulf between what you can observe externally in all sorts of ways and what you experience, you know, you're, you know, and not just in drug states, but just in states of being conscious and awake, you know, your subjective experience of being in the moment. How do you cross that bridge? When are we going to be able to build a machine that, you know, can project your thoughts, your hallucinations out on a screen or whatever? I mean, we may never, we may, may never be able to get that. This, this is the tough nut in neuroscience. This is the toughest nut to crack. You know, we all know that consciousness exists. We don't always agree on what it is, but we can, um, you know, we can cite our own subjective experience as proof that some form of consciousness exists. You know it exists. I know it exists because we we experience this. How do you describe that? Well, you know, number one, you, you're limited to words. So right there is a limitation. Science likes to quantify and measure things, you know, and within limits, you can quantify your experiences. You can talk about the hallucinogen rating scale. And, you know, is it, a, is it a five out of 10 and that sort of thing. And these are all very useful, but they, in some ways, they sort of miss the point, you know, because we're not able to, you know, we're not able to share I can't get inside your head and experience what it is to be you. You can't get inside my head, except maybe, you know, on rare occasions when we take psychedelics, we can have shared what seems to be telepathy and so on. But uh, again, you know, if you, if you start talking to people about this, they start looking at you a little funny. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you know, maybe you uh, need to step back from this a little bit, doctor. <laughs> you know, so uh, this is this is this is really the challenge for neuroscience, I think, in the in the 21st century, and it may be uh, a, it may be that it a holy grail that can never be achieved Mm. to really bridge these two things. All the external measurements, we can say everything about how the brain works and so on. How do we link that to subjective experience of being in the moment, you know, Mm. and uh, I don't know, but that's anybody who can nail that down, they will get, many Nobel Prizes, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah. 
I think that's what we're all working towards. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, our collective knowledge brings that together in this, you know, in this life, in this living hallucination that we're all experiencing. And, um, you know, we, I, I go back to, you know, my question of how do we, how do we educate? How do we talk to the uninitiated? How do we talk to people about these experiences to make them relevant, even to those who make the choice not to imbibe a, a psychedelic uh, medicine? And I, I tend to go towards um, similarities or trying to find connections. And so when I talk to folks who are uninitiated, I, I tend to ask them, you know, have you ever spun around and gotten dizzy or or have you ever held your breath really long time? And like, these are all altered states. Um, yeah, some of us yeah. have spontaneous mystical experiences, and but we all alter our state every day with caffeine, with sugar, with sex, with relationships, with video mm -hmm. games, with all these things. We're altering ourselves in every moment. And so I really like how Groff talks about non-ordinary states of consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a catch-all term because we're never really in a baseline state of consciousness. We're always altered by something um, right. in our environment. And so right. trying to connect on that level, then you're like, oh, well, these aren't so different. They're just, you know, maybe a little more um, zeroed in, like you can get there much faster. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's a good point. You know, there is no, you know, we're always in an altered state, you know, uh, and, we're always in a state that's <laughs> yes. not necessarily altered, but whatever state we happen to be in at the moment is the reflection of like our total neurochemical gestalt, you know, whatever's happening in our, <laughs> in our brains, whether we've introduced drugs into the picture or not, because again, as you know, as I've often stated, we are made of drugs. Mm -hmm. That's why drugs work. That's why, they're fascinating to us because they do interesting things, but they are a, just another variable that's affecting this sort of ongoing biochemical circus that's going on in your head all the time. And you can alter that in numerous ways by holding your breath, by meditating, by, you know, pressing your eyelids, by all of these things, you know, you can induce altered states or you can you know the the term isn't even accurate, but you can you can change your baseline state to some other some other place, and presumably there is some kind of baseline state that we think of as normal consciousness. You know, um, and and how do you talk to people about this? Well, it's hard. You know, I mean, I mean, something that most people have in have in common is is dreams, you know, you can talk about dreams because psychedelics often resemble dream-like states. So if you need a common ground, you can tell people, well, haven't you ever had an impactful dream that, that really made a difference, that you woke up and you thought, wow, you know, I really learned something there. So you can point to that and you can point to mystical experiences another one which uh, you know some people achieve it through years of trying of meditation and so on and other people you know they can take 25 milligrams of psilocybin and they're pretty much there and so you don't have to be a saint anybody can have these experiences you know and and i guess how you 
talk to people about this is, well, it's just difficult. <laughs> you know, in the first place, they have to be interested enough that you can even have the conversation. And there's a tendency to dismiss that, you know, in ordinary conversations. And the West, particularly, we have, we're conditioned to, to devalue inner experiences. Hmm. You know, this is part of our problem. We, I mean, part of many, we have many problems, but in the West, we tend to have a external focus, you know, on material things, on mm-hmm. on uh, external stimuli, music, movies, that sort of thing, you know. But we look outside of ourselves for enlightenment, for wisdom, and all that. Actually, we should be looking inside ourselves. Mm-hmm. And these psychedelics facilitate that process. It's like if they're mirrors, they let you turn the mirror on yourself, you know, and and you can learn things. Hard to, you know, I mean, uh, again, if you've had the experience, then it's easy to have a conversation. If you haven't had it, then, you know, how do you explain to somebody that, you know, I mean, it's very hard to explain it to the point where they will they will accept it. They tend to dismiss it. It makes them uncomfortable to talk about it, you know, yeah. because these are the realms of, you know, it, it, it these things happen at the nexus where, uh, you know, subjective experience, religious experience, psychotic experience, uh, other forms of intoxication, and all kinds of comes together mm-hmm. and and there's something about altered state that's inherently scary you know mm-hmm. or people tend to think it's scary mm-hmm. you know and so that makes it hard to to talk about it too so if all goes well and you know um freedom over consciousness is regained and you know these hap- these things happen in our lifetime we in the west here in the u.s are going to have to confront and consider uh, the question of, you know, what is our culture of psychedelics? You know, and you talk about going back to, you know, getting basic structure and guidance and fundamentals from indigenous cultures who've been using them many thousands of years. I think that's great, but there's Mm -hmm. also a level of cultural appropriation that I don't think is appropriate within our cultural context. Uh, And I've seen it uh, tried to apply numerous times unsuccessfully, whereas if you go to the Amazon in that cultural context, it's totally different. Um, So we in the West here are going to have to ask ourselves, like, without stealing from anybody else's culture, what is our culture of psychedelic medicine, therapeutics, self-exploration, consciousness, freedom, um, how are we going to define that and how are we going to create that container for our society so that we can finally, you know, step into our role in this bigger picture also? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think this is, this is a huge topic. This is a, this is a very important uh, topic because I totally agree with you. I, we can't, we can learn from indigenous people. We can even borrow some of the practices, but we need to recognize that we're not indigenous. 
what those practices mean to those folks is different than we might interpret them. I mean, we can learn from them, but I think that's, you really hit the nail on the head. This is the challenge for post 21st century Western technologically oriented people. How are we going to develop these para, these therapeutic or other paradigms for using psychedelics that actually fit in our society. Mm -hmm. We have to create something new. It, it can be a synthesis of indigenous practices and psychotherapeutic practices and maybe meditative practices. I mean, we can afford to be very eclectic here. We can integrate all these different uh, traditions, whether they're indigenous or Eastern or you know, Western mystical experiences, uh, psychoanalytic, all of these things have something to contribute because they're all disciplines in a way. They're disciplines that have to, they're, they're disciplines for looking at consciousness, you know, and, and, and creating specific states of consciousness. So there's plenty to learn from. You know, and there's there's plenty, you know, and, and over time, over the last 40 years or so, we have begun to create these practices, mm -hmm. you know, that, that work for us. Now, the decriminalization uh, movement, I think, is very important for this because right now, uh, you know, technically these things are prohibited and they're illegal. and uh, so that's just another thing that one has to deal with. But I think if they were decriminalized, you know, and very lightly regulated, I think that what you would see, you would, you would see uh, in a lot of cases in many communities, there are psychedelic groups, you know, that, that do practice this stuff and they do it very quietly. They do it underground because technically what they're doing is illegal. I think it would make a big difference if those groups could come out of the closet and say, yeah, we've been doing this. We have a psychedelic, uh, you know, interest group. We have ceremonies occasionally and, you know, people can join and learn how to use these things. I think it'd be a tremendous contribution to a community to for centers like that to be able to offer you know that kind of service because people do need guidance they mm -hmm. they don't need to be told how to use them well maybe in a sense they they need guidelines there's a intelligent way to use them and a very thoughtless way to use them we need to encourage intelligent thoughtful use of them and most people will get on board with that you know, so, so I think that this is a huge thing. This is our challenge. This is, in a way, it's a lot about what the McKenna Academy is all about. The reason I created the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy is to, you know, address exactly this kind of thing. You know, I want it to be a mystery school in the tradition of Eleusis, but also very much uh, a 21st century you know, place for learning about consciousness, about the substances and about ourselves that can, uh, you know, um, not, not steal from other traditions, but acknowledge other traditions mm -hmm. and 
use what works, you know, with acknowledgement and, uh, and create new paradigms. And, and that's the whole, that's the whole thing. And I think on the, you know, if there was a community of, uh, of interested individuals as there often are now, and some, some of them are kind of underground, some of them are not so underground, but I think it would be a tremendous benefit to the mental health of a community to do this. If, if, if there were a center where people could go for a weekend, whatever, to just get away from it all, why not even bring the kids, you know, and have, mm-hmm. have a weekend, go to your, it's like going to a spa, mm-hmm. you know, and you could get all those spa related mind, body, restorative kind of treatments, but you'd also have the option to take psychedelics under, you know, in a good set and setting. I think it'd be, it would do a lot to heal this country. Yeah, body, yeah. body mind, and soul. And the way you describe it, too, um, you know, I think of, you know, the synthesis almost, as, and I think in martial arts terms a lot. So I think of Bruce Lee, you know, coming to the U.S. and, and respecting uh, old ways, old traditions, but combining what worked um, discarding what didn't work and creating a whole new system that fit within the culture of the United States and what people wanted to learn at that time. I see this being sort of the same thing, this synthesis, but I really like how you have taught, how I've heard you talk about it before um, as like uh, maybe this idea of the betterment of the well, right? The betterment of the well. Right. Yes. That, that you don't have to be sick to to benefit from these things um from these right. non-ordinary states that that the but that maybe these non-ordinary states are are keys to to unlocking our ultimate inner healing potential you know most healing or all healing comes from within it doesn't you know we don't heal a cut from the external we we heal from the inside you know physically right it makes sense that that's that's how we would do it spiritually or psychologically as well yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there's a tendency to medicalize these things. Again, this is just stuffing them into a box that you they don't really fit, you know, because sure, the medical applications are important. It's wonderful that there are therapeutics, you know, therapeutic benefits from this for people that need it. But we all need, you know, who I mean, we're all high functioning people, not really sick but we can benefit from what these, what we can learn from these things. So betterment of the well, like any other practice, yoga or meditation or, or, you know, martial arts or exercise or anything, you don't do it because you're sick. You do it because you want to be a better person, Mm -hmm. you know, and you want to, you see ways to improve it. And that, that's the way it should be practiced, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if there were places in our society where people could go with no stigma, no risk of, you know, breaking the law or anything and no, no particular uh, risk of, you know, opprobrium, I guess, from the rest of society, if it's just an accepted thing to do, you know, and nobody gets too twisted in a knot about it. I think that would do a lot to uh, also take the pressure off the indigenous people and you know the ayahuasca tourism thing Mm -hmm. in some ways 
it has positive aspects to it, but it also has negative aspects in that it's completely changing the culture. And, you know, um, you, you can't, this is something that happens every time you get a, a the dominant culture in, you know, interfacing closely with a more fragile and indigenous culture. It's the indigenous culture that's going to lose mm-hmm. in that equation. So if you, and people, you know, people seek this ayahuasca tourism or now mushroom tourism is also growing up. People go to these places because they are spiritually bereft. They are looking for a genuinely meaningful spiritual experience. You know, they're not finding it in this culture. Religions are hollowed out. You know, for very few people does religion actually provide any kind of spiritual, you know, satisfaction. Uh, They tend to become rote and they're more, behavioral bludgeons than anything else they the last thing organized religion wants you to do is have a genuine mystical experience you know that's very threatening to them Mm -hmm. so we have to invent our own and i and people go to different countries in search of these experiences and it's a genuine impulse it's a sincere impulse for you know for genuine meaningful experience but the problem is that it has consequences when thousands of gringos go to South America and do it. Better if you could reverse that equation mm-hmm. and you could say, you don't need to go to get these medicines. The medicines are here, mm-hmm. you know, and bring bring the medicines from there to here rather than the people from here to there, mm-hmm. you know, in the simplest way of thinking of this sure. and everybody would benefit more, I think. Sure. And, uh, but you know, we have to get the uh, absurd uh, regulatory um, restriction restrictions changed and then that's possible. So that's what I would like to see. Uh, I think, I'd like to see psychedelics societally evolve in that direction over the next few years, and, you know, and we'll see if that happens. Yeah. So I just have a couple more questions, quick questions for you. I know I want to respect your time too. Um, so first off, uh, this is a, this is a wave. This is a, you know, a, a wave of consciousness um, that's coming our way. And what do you see as, like the potential futures of the human mind. I oftentimes contemplate this quite extensively. And, uh, you know, I, I've even read accounts of uh, anthropologists who, who postulate that as human beings, many, many hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, we might've had, you know, over 300 different senses within our, our body, uh, whether mm. it's telekinesis or, um, you know, uh, uh, control over matter or you know walking through walls or you know any number of senses that we may have just forgotten over time they've been mm. deprogrammed out of us but they're still within our body and i don't know i see that you know the mind has all these potentials still there just latent and that we might be able to start accessing some of them but what do you see i mean you've seen much more than i have um what do you see as some of the potentials of the future of the mind well, um, <laughs> um, I, I think, I mean, I think the, 
you know, the, the sort of superficial answer, but nonetheless true answer is that the, the potentials are limited, un, limitless, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and psychedelics are a way to learn <coughs> how to use the mind, you know, and in ways that, you know, either we once knew and have forgotten or in, in, or in completely new ways. There are other disciplines to learn this too. And now with some of the newer technologies that we have, we can actually do things that, uh, you know, it was not possible to, to contemplate doing before that, like using, you know, neural networks and, and connections between, between brains and this sort of thing, you know, human machine interfaces to maybe create actually actual systems of, of interaction that if they're not telepathy, they're a damn good simulation Mm. of it, you know, and, and that sort of thing I think will be possible. And I think, uh, you know, this is part of the evolution uh, of, uh, of our mind. We're, we're really at the beginning. I mean, psychedelics are ancient technologies but we have newer technologies too you can use those in conjunction with psychedelics and i think you can get to some pretty amazing places some interesting places it remains to be seen Mm -hmm. yeah i have i have some this is this is part of our evolution i mean aren't we trying to evolve ultimately into bodhisattvas you know into enlightened beings and uh, we have to use all the tools we have to to do that. And that's a desirable goal, I think. Yeah, I think that was very well put. Um, so last question. Um, and it's just out of my basic curiosity. Um, what is the most, I mean, you're on tour a lot. You, you go to different conferences, you travel a lot, and you, you talk to a lot of people. What is the most asked, most frequently asked question that you get? And also, do you ever get sick and tired of, uh, answering questions about your brother or being asked questions about your brother? <laughs> oh, yes to both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I sometimes get sick and tired. I'm not really sick and tired of it because right. people are, you know, people are curious and, and they do think of us as, as a dyad in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I, you know, I, uh, sometimes, you know, tongue in cheek a little bit, I tell people, you know, how come he gets all this attention? He's been dead for 20 years. You know, I'm still here. I'm still talking. I'm still kicking. You know, how about a little respect? But ultimately, it's it's good. You know, I mean, I have to say, you know, to Terrence's credit, uh, you know, he was so far ahead of his time. I mean, this is the thing that's consistently amazing to me is that people, young people come to me at these conferences and so on. And they say, everything I know, I learned from your brother, everything I know that I consider valuable. I learned from listening to your brother. And it's like, these people had to be in diapers if they were even alive when Terrence was at the height of his career. So I guess that's a testimony to how timely and timeless his rap was. I mean, he was way ahead of his time. And, you know, what everybody's talking about now, the planetary crisis and all this, 
was talking about this in the early 90s. And so, so it's very, you know, he's achieved this strange immortality on the internet. And he's like this virtual sage and people still want to hear what he has to say. So in a way, I don't really have to interpret it for him. I can say, you know, go to YouTube. Do you want to hear what my brother said? Go to YouTube. Do you want to hear what I say? Come to my conferences, you know. And uh, and it's it's a similar message, but I but but not the same, you know. So I I do get tired of it, but I expect it, and and it's okay. I I know it comes from a good place in people's hearts, you know. And uh, what the other the your other question is, what do I most get ta- asked about mm-hmm. that I'd rather not talk about? <laughs> Hands down, the experiment at La Chirera, you know. Okay very difficult to discuss and and yeah i i don't particularly want to keep beating that dead horse you know for all sorts of reasons mm-hmm. uh, and it was a profound experience but uh you know uh on reflection i've had to i think that there you know in in theoretical terms uh i i don't think we learned a lot you know as 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 time goes on, a lot of the ideas that that came to us at La Chirera are they're just not valid. You know, they were delusional essentially, um, with maybe a grain or two of truth mixed in somewhere in there. But uh, I mean, I certainly don't regret the experiment at La Chirera. It was a pivot point in my life, in our lives that, you know, I would never, you know, I would not go back. I would not change it. It is what happened. But on the other hand, it happened. I was only 20. You know, Terrence was only 24. Most of our lives have been lived since then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I don't want to be the person who's famous for their psychosis (laughs) in a certain way. I've made other contributions. So the experiment at La Chirera comes up as a perpetual trope, you know, but uh, I prefer yeah. not to talk about it. <laughs> and, and you've written it all down in your book, too. So Yeah, uh, it's all there. If people want to unpack it, read the book. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I, too, you know, especially after reading this book, um, I, too, see you and your brother really as that dyad. You know, you are two yeah. sides of the same coin. And the way you write about it in this book made me think about my bond with my own brother. We're only 18 months apart, but we're two very much like that. We complement each other in a lot of different ways. And so I want to say thank you for putting this book out. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into when I read it, and it benefited me in so many ways beyond just what was on the pages. It's enhanced my relationship with my own brother and and brought me more gratitude that he's still here with me and I can take advantage of that. So thank you very much. I am very happy to hear that, uh, Shane. And and unfortunately, I have to tell people they're all sold. I I do not have a single copy of the Brotherhood to sell and the stocks on Amazon are out. So the only way people can get it is in the form of the Kindle book. Mm So they can still get that from Amazon. That will never 
and somewhere in Hawaii in somebody's garage there's a box of 16 books mm-hmm. those that's all that's left i just mailed out my last copy today so or tomorrow i will mail it so so yeah it's uh, it it's been a successful run um now i'm looking into reprinting it or or getting some kind of print on demand thing set up but uh you know for right now it's uh, it's 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 rare it's hard to get and the prices on amazon are getting ridiculous but you know that's yeah. the way it is so go get it on kindle right if they want to see it um absolutely also- you can get it on kindle i think and then yeah. this one this one isn't out of print this right. one is yeah and that's also a great book very different you know yeah. just just but yeah that one is available for sure so i'm uh i'm i'm also i'll be going to the uh consciousness conference in arizona next year where you'll be speaking and i okay. hope to, i hope to be able to uh you know buy you an iced tea or something and have you sign uh this collector's book that i bought um and uh just check in with you and see how everything's going then so well, let's to- let's make a date of it. Yeah, I'll I'll see you there. Okay, looking um, forward. And if anybody wants to, uh, you know, find more information about the things you're doing with the McKenna Academy, or um, I don't know, are you still doing stuff with Symbio? If people want to reach out to you, how can they? How can they do Symbio that? is pretty much a dead horse. Okay, uh, but but the. Uh, www.mckenna.academy is a place to look. And then, of course, the Hefter Research Institute, which is, uh, I'm still affiliated with it. Hefter is going through changes, but it's still very active. So that's H-E-F-F-T-E-R.org. And you can look at the Hefter Institute as well. I'm not at the center of the research, but I'm a board member since 1993 and I go to the meetings and I just, you know, the young researchers have taken over, but they're, they're doing great work. So still support that. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Uh, Thank you for your time. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you in a couple months. Yeah. Very good interview. Let me know when it's posted and I'll get it, on our website. It'll, it should be up in the next few days, but I'll let you know. Okay, great. Wow. Holy cow. That was one of my favorite podcasts that I think I've done ever. Uh, it was amazing. I love, love, love talking to my heroes. And this is something that I wanted to make sure I get into the podcast that all of you guys hear this. It was something that I was told when I was going through my substance abuse recovery. I was in an inpatient treatment facility in California, I think in 2009. Um, and my counselor, one of my counselors there, uh, who became an intensely um, spiritual uh, guide for me in my life, his name is Tom Montgomery. Uh, it was this old cowboy like a therapist with a PhD and didn't talk too much, but when he did talk, it was extremely wise and he was just full of love. He's like a Santa Claus, uh, like the feeling you'd get from a Santa Claus, but wearing like a, you know, old West belt buckle and, you know, carrying a gun on his hip, you know, that kind of 
fun attitude <laughs> mixture of attitudes. But this this guy, uh, Tom, who has since passed, um, you know, shout out to you, Tom. I know you're listening. Um, he was amazing in that he told me when I was going through recovery, he said, you know what, Shane, um, I know you think you don't have much to live for right now, um, but there's got to be people out there that you maybe wish you were more like or wish that you could talk to or or get a, a sense of like how they made it through something. And I was like, yeah, I think we all have people like that that we wish we could talk to. What does that have to do with me? And he gave me an assignment. He said, I want you to write two letters. I want you to write a letter um, to two people that you have always wanted to meet or talk to. And just write an open-ended letter telling them, you know, whatever you want about how they've impacted you in, in your life. Uh, and I want you to, you know, I'll help you track down their, their contact info online and you can send it to them. And so I did this thinking like, okay, this is an interesting exercise. I'm not going to get a response back. And I sent out these two letters and um, I didn't get responses back from both, but I did get responses back from one of them. And uh, from the one that I thought, like, there's no way that I'm ever going to get a response back from this person. And I did. And it just sunk in right in that moment, all of it, all at once. It was like, holy crap. These people that I idolize, that I put up on a pedestal, these people that I see as my heroes, um, they are just people. And they're attainable. They're reachable. They're, they're people that I can actually talk to and learn from and form friendships and relationships with. Uh, and this whole time I'm thinking like, I'm not good enough to have a relationship with any famous people. Like, what do they want anything to do with me? Well, guys, they're just people too. And so since that, uh, experience, um, I've had much more luck and, and courage to kind of just put myself out there. And, and when I get those self doubting thoughts, like there's no way this person's going to ever want to talk to you. I just do it anyway. And I go, to conferences and I go to, to book signings and I go, you know, to these places that these people are going to be. And I just put myself out there and maybe tell them part of my story and we find connections. It's amazing. Um, and so this podcast in particular with Dr. McKenna was amazing for me because he is one of my heroes and somebody that I've looked up to for quite some time. Um, and it was amazing. I just, you know, I met him at that, uh, at that book signing, got his business card back then and didn't think anything of it until I came across the business card. And I just sent out an email and said, Hey, what's up? Would you like to do this podcast? And he responded, um, very graciously with his time and said, you know, I don't have time right now, but maybe in a year or so, uh, once I get moved and settled, we can do this thing. And, you know, I followed up with him and he came through on his word and a very big thank you to Dr. McKenna for doing that. Uh, and proving once again to me and validating that uh, I am on the right path and that um, the right people are going to come in contact with me and inform me and teach me in so many different ways. Uh, the universe already has these these things uh, planned for me um, or are, are in the works. So all I have to do is trust that I am worth it and I am worthy and I am... Um, you know, and then I can maybe hold my own with, with some of these people that uh, I idolize. I'm still really nervous for this podcast, guys. My heart was racing. I checked my whoop strap. That, that, so I have this whoop strap that my wife got me for Christmas, and it monitors all my um, 
all my biorhythms and things, my heart rate and heart rate variability and all this stuff. And I went back to the data and checked like during this podcast while I was recording with Dr. McKenna, my heart rate was like all over the place. It was pretty, pretty intense. Um, but yeah, I was super nervous, but, uh, it turned out to be amazing. Um, and I'm still feeling charged and, and really good from, uh, about talking to him. Uh, and this is weeks later, you know, when I'm releasing this, this episode right now, I'm still feeling really charged. Um, so thanks again, Dr. McKenna. I hope to talk to you again in the future. Um, folks, if you're listening, I hope you liked it. Um, please continue to like and share our podcasts, um, especially big ones like this, you know, more people, um, will recognize Dr. McKenna's name and click on the links. If you are to share them, um, Please also donate if you find any value in this. It does cost us money to produce these shows and uh, takes quite a few hours of my time to uh, you know edit and put these things together and, and get the YouTube videos up and, and all that stuff edited. Oh, yeah, go check out the, the video podcast of this as well. You can see me and Dr. McKenna talking through the Zoom chat app uh, on the MindOps YouTube page. Um, Go check out the YouTube page and the website, M-I-N-D-O-P-S. Um, yeah, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with all my rants and all my BS. Uh, I really hope that you guys learned something from these things. I know I really do. This is a really special project for me, um, and I hope it is for you guys too. So help by contributing. Like, share. Go tell your friends, go tell your family, text, you know, after you get done listening to this episode, guys, just text like three people, um, one real short text message, say, Hey, go check out this podcast. I think you really get something out of it. Um, spread the word. Let's, let's invite more and more people into this conversation. We need all humanity on board with this guys. And, um, this podcast is only one, one small piece of that, but an important piece. And, uh, it's not just me running it running the show here it's you guys too uh you guys and the universe and i'm just a facilitator so until next time guys this is shane lamaster with conversations with the mind hope you enjoy it here's some more arturo complex coming at your ear holes
Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.